years ago, I was planning for a, a retreat. I, I was planning for to, to take a bunch of, of my leaders to, out to Camp Caroline. Now, like most camp bookings, when you're trying to plan a retreat, it requires a couple of phone calls in terms of trying to prepare and coordinate a variety of different things, trying to coordinate rooms and figure out speakers and who's what are the expectations within the camp. On one occasion, I had called Camp Caroline and, and uh, no one was there and the answering machine picked up and it said, hello, this is Camp Caroline. We can't get to the phone right now and leave a message after the beep. And so me being the, uh, me trying to be the professional that I, that I wanted to be, uh, I said, Hi, this is Pastor Ryan. I'm just calling to work out some of the details of our upcoming retreat. And I know there's number of things that we need to coordinate and trying to figure out. And so if you could just give me a call back, that would be great. Okay, love you. Bye. Click. Immediately after I hung up the phone, it struck me that I had just concluded this supposedly very professional voicemail to Camp Caroline with, love you, bye. That's a pretty typical response that I might give to my wife Natalie over the phone, but at that point I was kind of hoping that they wouldn't call me back at all at that point. I was pretty humiliated. Now throughout our lives, we all have different encounters with different people, don't we? Whether it's the gas station attendant at Costco or the telescammer who wants, to, wants us to invest in a new antivirus software for our computers, or our neighbors, or coworkers, or our classmates. Each of these relationships likely cause us, in us a, cause in us a different response in terms of how we interact with them. That's kind of what made the voicemail message, love you, bye, so unusual and awkward. It was inappropriate. I don't throw out love yous to just anyone. Those words are for people who have a special place in my life. It would be inappropriate and lose its meaning if I express my love to the grocery clerk at Home Depot or to the Amazon delivery driver, no matter how excited I was for his delivery. Our interactions with people is often dependent on the degree of our relationship, though, isn't it? There's, there's an appropriateness. Social norms help guide us in terms of what is acceptable, what is socially awkward or inappropriate in terms of how you and I relate to each other. For most of us, our relational encounters happen for a variety of reasons. We pass someone on a path at a, at a park somewhere, and we might say, hello. Or we greet someone over the phone. Maybe we enjoy a meal. Each of those occasions require a different, differing degrees of hospitality. A few years ago, I came across this book, and I wish I could give credit to where it was due, but I can't remember the name of the book, nor can I remember the author. So um, someone wrote it. It's not my idea, but I think it's a good idea. In this book, though, the author draws this analogy of relationships being like a house, where we only let certain people into our lives, just like we only let certain people into our homes as well. There are some people that we wouldn't really feel comfortable inviting them into our homes. Those are kind of the, the those are kind of the encounter type relationships where we know that we can be kind and friendly to those types of people, but there isn't likely going to be any sort of meaningful relationship that's going to occur. It's just a, maybe an initial conversation or two. In fact, just yesterday, I went disc golfing at Baker's Park at 7 in the morning, and I was by myself. There was already lines up, lineups of people playing disc golf, and, and this other guy that was by himself, he asked if he could join me. 
And so the two of us, we decided we'd play around together. And he was a nice enough guy. He was a teacher. He taught kindergarten, kindergarten to grade six phys ed. And, and we had a nice visit and a nice chat. We talked to him with disc golf. And it was, that was it. But there's not a chance that I would invite him over to my place to hang out further. It was just a random encounter. But there are others, though, that we might invite into our houses. And the far, but the farthest that they get into our homes is maybe our kitchen or our dining room or living room, where we have this friendship with them, and, and they're people that we enjoy sharing life with. And maybe they're the type of friendships that we would do in an activity with, where we enjoy their company. But then there's actually others who go a little bit deeper than that where we might actually begin to see, they might actually begin to see the rest of our home. They might, be, they might see, you know, see our bedroom, for example, or the room that we take all of our unfolded laundry and shove it in when they come over. The unclean bathroom that's not reserved for guests. Now, the implication that the author is making here is that these places that are unguarded are obviously a little bit more intimate. There's a deeper level of relationship that has occurred there. It's a place that very few people actually see or even care to see because it's vulnerable. And it would be uncomfortable for some to, 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 to see that, to be a part of that. If you came over to my house and I welcomed you into my home and, and instead of saying, have a seat on the couch, I come into the kitchen, I said, let's go check out my bedroom first. That would be weird and inappropriate. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about a similar concept where the tabernacle, a location where it was believed that the Lord dwelt. Inside the tabernacle contained a smaller room inside of it called the Holy of Holies. Now the Holy of Holies included a variety of symbolic items inside the room, including the Ark of the Covenant. The, the Holy of Holies was this sacred space that only very select people could go into. And according to Leviticus 10, that small group of people were known as priests. They would be the only ones who would be able to enter into this space at very specific times. And to ensure that only the appropriate people went into this sacred space, it was separated by this enormous, thick curtain that acted as a barrier between the outside world and a holy God. So when the priests entered into the Holy of Holies, into this, this sacred space, they knew that they needed to enter into it reverently. Understanding that this was a place of deep intimacy with the Lord because they understood that this is where the presence of God was. And so these priests would enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the, peak, uh, behalf of the people and and speak to God and advocate for the Israelites to God. And in turn, God would actually speak to the priests so that he would pass a message on to the people as well. And so in many ways, these priests became almost like conduits to God as the Israelites sought to follow him. Until about 900 B.C. when King Solomon built this elaborate temple. The tabernacle was no longer a temporary location, but it was a fixture in Jerusalem. Yet the curtain still existed. And then something happens. Jesus is crucified. And that curtain 
that separated God from the world. That veil that separates the holy of holies. That veil that only certain people were allowed to walk through was torn in two. And now God was accessible to anyone. And it becomes this dramatic symbol that through Jesus' crucifixion, God is inviting humanity, humanity to experience relational intimacy with Him. It's an invitation to be known by God and to know who God is. Where that kind of information no longer depended on, was no, was no longer dependent on the priests or the religious leaders, but instead now God was accessible to everyone. And it's in this accessibility that Paul continues in his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6. See, the God, we know that God is accessible to the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul makes that very clear throughout the book of Ephesians. But the way that they would have understood how to interact with God would have been two very different experiences. For the Jews, they would have been most familiar with relating to God by following the law in the Old Testament. The Gentiles, they would have been used to, they would have been most familiar with worshiping an entirely different deity, with an entirely different paganistic practice before they converted to Christianity. But those presuppositions that they both were, they both grew up in, those are the things that they were familiar with. Those things would have influenced and shaped how they would have experienced or thought they should experience God as well. Now, Paul, in his letter, in the first three chapters, he lays out this entirely different picture of who God is centered around Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. This also would have been radically different from what any of them would have been following before. But not only does Paul radically transform their thinking about who God is, but he begins to communicate a radically different approach on how to relate to God as well. Let me say that again, that Paul begins to communicate a radically different approach in terms of how humanity can relate to God. Most, noticed, most notable is his reference to the Holy Spirit throughout his letter. It's out of that Spirit's working that Paul points the Ephesians to a promise fulfilled, points them to the idea that the Spirit brings unity, reminds them that the Spirit is an is provides an abundance of God's presence in their lives, that it's no longer limited to just a, a, a room or a space, that suddenly now we are the vessels for His presence. When Paul is writing this le letter, the concept of a Holy Spirit would have been an entirely foreign concept for most of them. Because we know that it was only about 30 years between when the day of Pentecost actually happened in Acts chapter 2 from when this letter was actually written to the Ephesians. So only about 30 years have transpired between this day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon God's people to when they're reading this letter now. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit would have been a very different understanding about how any of them would have really experienced God. For the Jews, they would have understood that this was a, they were used to a monotheistic deity. Suddenly, this is a very different idea of monotheism. Three persons in one? Up until Acts chapter 2, we had seen God the Father and God the Son as kind of central characters in Scripture. 
but it's during the Pentecost that we actually see this handoff of responsibility from the Father and Son onto the Holy Spirit. Where 50 days after Jesus was resurrected and the veil, that curtain is torn, and Jesus ascended to heaven. At this point, 50 days after that, the relational football is handed off to the Holy Spirit and says, you run with it, your turn. Now what makes this handoff so significant, in my mind, is that about 600 years earlier, before the day of Pentecost, in the book of Joel, there's actually a prophecy that predicts this event that's going to happen. Joel actually prophesies to the people of Judah with these words in Joel chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. He says, So you will know that I am in the midst of the... So that, let me try that again. <laughs> you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never, And my people will never be put to shame. It will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. So when the Holy Spirit descends onto the people on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it's not just the presence of God filling up His people, but it's actually a fulfillment of a promise that God had made 600 plus years earlier to the prophet Joel. Where up until this point, we had seen glimpses of God's Spirit on the move throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovering over the formless and void. The Spirit of God talking to Moses in Exodus 3 through a burning bush. The Spirit of God speaking to Mary, saying, Blessed are you amongst all women. Where it seems like the Spirit of God is rationed, almost rationed out to a very select and very special people, reserved for very special occasions for divine moments. God creating the heavens and the earth. Moses leading the Exodus. Mary bearing the child of God. And we would absolutely affirm those events and say, yes, those were incredible, significant events in history. We could absolutely get behind that and say we recognize that God's Spirit was doing something significant in that moment. Doing something significant with that person or with that group. It's in the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit would be God's active manifestation and presence on earth within all of His people as they actively choose Him as the priority in which they live their lives. As we prioritize Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to equip and sustain and reveal and convict and invite you and I into repentance so that we might actually experience the fullness of God's grace and love and holiness the same way that the priests did as they entered into the Holy of Holies. Another significant way that the Holy Spirit has experienced that Paul points us to throughout Ephesians is in the area of unity. Where the early church struggled with this tension of uni unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Some Jews questioned the legitimacy of Gentiles into the kingdom. Gentiles resented the Jews for it. Now, obviously, 2,000 years later, we don't have any issues of unity within the Christian church, do we? We got it all figured out. Well, not quite. On the day of Pentecost, as 
experienced in Joel's prophecy is fulfilled still. The only boundary that God seems to be concerned with is whether you claim to follow Jesus or not. Jews and Gentiles, vaccinated or unvaccinated, conservatives and liberals, Pentecostals and Baptists, Baptists and other Baptists. The Spirit of God has poured out His Spirit onto humanity. And it's not just like a little trickle of His Spirit. It's a pouring out of His Spirit. I remember on a variety of different mission trips that I've, that I've led and been a part of to, to Mexico and to Peru and Brazil, the water situation was very, very different than Canada, especially in terms of quantity. There's quality issues for sure, but also in quantity. It was extremely limited. And we would often, as we would go to these different third world countries, we would often stay in people's homes from, their, from the church. And these people who had very little to speak of, Whatever they had, they made available to us Canadians to try to make it a little less uncomfortable as they adjusted to, as we tried to live in what they considered normal. One of the biggest adjustments for me that I struggled with was, especially in those places, was when it was time for showering. Because most houses didn't have running water. So any water that they had came from the rain and was collected in giant water tanks on top of people's homes. And so if it rained, great, you'd have a full tank of water. If it didn't rain, then you had to wait for the city's ration of water to come and be delivered to your house. And that was kind of your ration for the week for your household, regardless of how many spoiled Canadians you had living in your house. Ultimately, these, ultimately these, this, that meant that showers for, for all of us in the household, didn't matter how many people were there, were uncommon. So when the opportunities for showers did come, we looked forward to it. What I wasn't expecting, though, was for them to give us a bucket and say, here's your, here's your water. And they would give us a little yogurt container and say, this is, this is what you can use. You can, you can pour it on yourself. You can get to create a lather, and you get another one of these to, to, to rinse off. So, we, so I'm not sure if you, you would consider that to be enough water to, for you to have a shower but, or to clean off. But for myself, that was a stretch. There's a convenience here with that, with showers, that we often take for granted. That convenience didn't exist in those places. That abundance didn't exist there. Instead, it was rationed. It was limited so that everyone got just a little bit of what was offered. And obviously, those were not pleasant experiences. Now, admittedly, the difference between that experience and the first shower that I had when I got home was pretty significant. Where I experienced this abundance of water. I, I didn't need all of that water, but I wanted all of the water. I could just stand in the shower. There's, there was this craving for an abundance, this excess where you know that you can just stand there as long as you want and it will just continue to come. The, the water will just continue to pour. That's the visual imagery, I think, here that comes to mind when Joel's words that God's Spirit is poured out over humanity. It's no longer rashed. You don't just get a little bit like that. You get this excess, this abundance. 
But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was no longer intended for just certain individuals. It was no longer limited to just Jews, or it was now offered to anyone, to everyone, that the excessiveness of God's Spirit is dumped out onto us. So that as God's Spirit is poured over us and actually fills us with His presence in our lives. The problem, though, is that for many of us, that many of us experience is that we don't always appreciate the reality that God's Spirit is evidence of God keeping His promise to His people. The problem that some of us experience is that we forget or even at times reject possibility that God's Spirit actually unites us. The other problem that many of us experience is that we don't always believe that God's Spirit has actually been poured into each one of us, and that our lives are full of His presence, that we are actually a vessel that God fills up. I take this jug of water. Would you say that's full? It's only half full, absolutely. What's more? Is it full now? Some would say it's full. When we ask for a full cup of coffee, for example, we'd say, yeah, that would be good. I don't want it to spill over the edges. But God's Spirit is excessively poured out. So there's no room left. There's no space left. Why is this important? Imagine you were that vessel that God's Spirit has poured out. It's overflowing now in you. This is important because sometimes, I mean, sometimes our prayers don't always reflect the belief or the faith that we really are that full of the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit that we see in Genesis 1 transforming everything out of nothing. That same Spirit we see breaking down barriers in Jericho. That same Spirit we see breathing life into the dead in Ezekiel 37 is inside of us, filling us with His presence where the Holy Spirit is poured onto humanity at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and continues through you and I today, where God is also in the midst of continuing that transformative process. He continues to tear down the barriers in our lives, continues to breathe life into you and I. That same Spirit is in you and I if we follow Jesus where we know that the day of Pentecost was God's way of continuing the conversation with humanity that he started in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve. So when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, pray in the Spirit. Now in some Christian circles, that would be interpreted as praying and speaking in tongues or other charismatic gifts. And that's likely... But this is probably most likely because we see it happen on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But I do think that Paul is talking about something a little bit different here. I think he's talking about how we interact with God as we, li- as we live our lives. <clears throat> we know 
prayer is no longer designated for the priests or for certain people for a certain time. But instead, that God's Spirit is given to us to help lead and equip and sustain and reveal and convict and invite us into a meaningful personal relationship with God throughout our lives. Instead, the invitation to pray in the Spirit from Paul actually ties together his previous verses when he talks about the armor of God. And he says, if you want to put on the armor of God, pray in the Spirit. If you want those things all to connect together, pray in the Spirit. The problem with praying in the Spirit, like Paul invites the Ephesians to, is also the number of resistant forces at work as we try to do that. That when it comes to prayer, especially in moments of crisis or difficulties, sometimes what happens is we end up bypassing the idea of praying in the Spirit and says, out of the way, God, I'm going to take over. I'm going to do it myself. I'm just going to do it, my, do it on my own. The problem with praying in the Spirit is that most of us, dare, dare, dare I say none of us, like being dependent on someone or something. We'd rather be the ones in charge. Praying in the Spirit, though, submits ourselves to God. It forces us to declare our dependence on Him. And for many of us, that's, that's a problem. Praying in the Spirit submits ourselves to God and makes us dependent on Him. Another problem with praying in the Spirit is that we forget that it's intended to be a relational expression. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But if we were to look at the variety of world religions that exist around the world, we would see that most expressions of prayer aren't relational at their root, but instead they're more ritualistic-based. And there probably is some value in rituals at times. But I have found that it becomes more about the quantity of prayers rather than the quality of prayers. Where we become concerned about the amount we prayed and how we prayed instead of the quality of the conversation of the God that we're praying to. The problem then is that God's Spirit was given to us so that we would know God personally and that we would be known by God personally. Sometimes we don't desire that. Sometimes we'd rather be our own lowercase g God. Praying in the Spirit then responds to God's invitation to be known by God and, and, we choose, and when we do that we're saying I desire that I desire to be known by God another problem with praying in the spirit is that it's scary just like the priest will enter into the holy of holies the priest would enter into a posture of holy terror as they entered into the sacred space of the Holy of Holies. The reality is, is that intimacy is a scary place. Sometimes we would just rather have these random chance encounters like I had with the guy in the disc golf course yesterday. We just pass by each other and greet each other. Praying in the Spirit, though, is an invitation with God. And the problem is that is that sometimes I don't always want to be intimate with God. Sometimes I just want to pray for my flu. Sometimes I just want to tell God what I want. Sometimes I just, I just want to keep things shallow. I don't always want to be vulnerable 
or show weakness or tell God that I've messed up in some way. Because when we are in the presence of a holy God, when we pray in the Spirit, we are face to face with our own broken, inadequate, limited reality that we don't measure up to the greatness of God. The problem of prayer then is that sometimes we don't know what to do with that level of intimacy. That's what Paul says, do it anyway. Pray in the Spirit. So as we pray in the Spirit, we are actually releasing our own self-protectionism and letting our own guard down and allowing ourselves to be entirely, truly honest with ourselves, authentic and raw before God and saying, God, this is who I am. This is what's going on in my life. Where we begin to let God into the corners of our lives that we haven't let anyone in before because it's too shameful or too painful or too sinful. If we look at this vessel, there is no room for hiding. There's no, we don't get to have a little pocket somewhere in here where we just say, you can't go in there. It is full. It is overflowing. The problem with prayer then ultimately has nothing to do with prayer or the Holy Spirit, but it's actually me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. So instead, this morning, as we consider this idea of praying in the Spirit, as we consider this idea that the Holy Spirit is present and has filled each of us up, this morning we do four things. We affirm that we are full of His presence. That as we say yes to Jesus, we, that His Holy Spirit fills us as His vessel. That there is no room for anything else. Two, that we affirm our dependence on Him. That there's, there's a reality that we experience that we know that we can't do anything without Him. Affirm our desire to be known by God. No secrets. No hiding. No secret spaces. No hidden corners. Desire to be known by Him. And four. Affirm that our relationship with God deepens when we are honest with Him. Sometimes that means being angry. Sometimes that means crying out to Him. Sometimes it means that we have to communicate in a way that maybe we don't think that we should, but to, to a holy God, the King of Kings. Yet there's something about this desire that God has for us to be honest with Him. He's given us the emotions that we, that he's, that we have for a reason. At times we need to express that. Maybe there's someone who's here or someone who's watching online that just needs to understand and know that it's okay to cry out in anger at God. He can take your anger. Let me say that again. Four things. We affirm that we are full of His presence. We affirm our dependence on God. Three, we affirm our desire to be known by God. And four, we affirm that our relationship with God deepens when we are honest with Him. Thank you that 
you have allowed us to be one of your vessels. That you fill us with your presence. Not just halfway, not just most of the way, overflowing with your presence. That you pour it into us. What a gift. Thank you that your, your spirit continues to move and continues to transform, continues to break down barriers, continues to, to reveal yourself. Lord, our desire now is to, as we go is to respond to your spirit. Lord, help us to reflect your glory, your love, your grace, your fullness wherever we go, Jesus.